We are finishing Daniel today. Uh, so we began Daniel uh, at the very beginning of this year in January, and we've been making our way through, and we have read every single word of this book, and we will do that now as we, as we finish at the end of chapter 12. And just to recap, Daniel begins in 609 B.C. when Babylon, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, comes and defeats Judah. And so that's where it begins, but it addresses issues and topics and people all the way right to the return of Christ at the end of, uh, at the end of this earth and the new heavens and new earth being created. Uh, many people uh, believe that Daniel is simply about Daniel and maybe his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, the book has some things to say about them, but in reality, it is primarily about the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And one thing we learn all throughout the book of Daniel is that there is a God who rules. He has all power, he rules over all kings, and he rules over all kingdoms. Throughout the book of Daniel, we see uh, the emphasis on God's power, on his provision, on his presence with his people. And that the reason that Daniel and his friends are able to persevere and have faith was because of their God. It was not because of some innate characteristic that they had, but it was because of their faith in God. And, and what we see as we look at Daniel is that Christians of all ages can, can persevere despite trials, because of their faith in God. And as Ben shares today, the reason churches in Indonesia, we can persevere, and they can persevere today, even through great pain. It's not because of who we are. It's not because of our strength, but it's because of the God that we worship. And that's good news, because when we look at Daniel 7 through 12, so Daniel 1 through 6 primarily looks at the time of Daniel's life. Him and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But as we go from Daniel 7 through 12, we begin looking all throughout time from then to the very return of Christ. And we see the truth that's already been expressed today. We live in a broken world. And because of that, there is pain, there is suffering, there is trials. And especially as Christians, it is, it is clearly depicted that we will suffer in our faith. And so the book is going to close with three final truths that are meant to help strengthen us and enable us to persevere. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so we're going to read Daniel 12, verses 5 through 13. This will be the shortest passage we've read all throughout Daniel. And, and then we will pray. One thing we do is we stand when we read the Word of God here. So I'm just going to ask that you stand. We do this because we believe God's Word comes with this full authority. We believe it comes uh, with his inspiration, and it's like no other book. So we do this to honor our God. Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? 
He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let me pray. Father, Father, we just thank you for the book of Daniel. It is a good book. It's a hard book. It's complicated. There's things that are easy to understand. There's things that are more difficult to understand. But as we come to a close today, God, may your word be clear. Give us understanding. Help us to understand the truths that you give us. God, that, that through your word, we accurately see the world for what it is. It is broken, and there is suffering. But yet, God, there is victory in your son, Jesus. And you have promised a blessing for all who persevere in the faith. And may we know that we can stand firm in the faith today, not by our strength, but by your grace. And as we do, there is a great reward that awaits us as we come into your presence for all of eternity. Be with us now as we study your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Just to recap, uh, if some of you are joining us today, uh, Daniel's made up of a lot of visions. It's an interesting book. It's definitely strange. There's, there's pictures of beasts and, and goats and rams, and there's pictures of wars, and it's very, very symbolic. And the final vision takes place in Daniel's chapters 10, 11, and 12. Daniel chapter 10 uh, is the context, is the opening of this vision. Daniel 11 through chapter 12 verse 4 is the vision. And what we see is there's going to be lots of wars. There's going to be persecution of God's people. And it will continue right up until the end. And then the conclusion of the vision and the book is the passage that we just read here today. And so this is what we're going to look at. So if you're joining us, hopefully that gives you just a little bit of uh, perspective but I want to notice, I want you to see in two places, in verse 9 and verse 13, we read the same words, go your way. So twice, Daniel said, go your way, Daniel. In other words, finish your days, Daniel. Live, trust in what I have told you. Or if this was Paul writing to Timothy, it might be, fight the good fight, Timothy. Persevere in the faith. Stand firm. So, so that's what we have. Daniel, we're at the end now. You have a whole book of truths about me, of visions that reveal what I am doing. Now go your way. Live in light of what I have told you. And before we actually look at these three truths, what I want to just to see is who's speaking. If you see in chapter, uh, if you see Daniel is next to the Tigris River. Uh, it says in verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and the other on the other side. Well, at the beginning of this vision, in chapter 10, we're told Daniel's at the Tigris River. And, and here in verse 5, we seem there's, there seems to be two figures, one on this bank and, and one on that side of the bank. They seem to be angels. And then there seems to be another figure in verse 6. He's clothed in linen, and he, he's above the water. 
Now in chapter 10, verses 5 through 6, the beginning of this vision, it tells us about a person clothed in linen, and it describes him with the very description that we read of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. So what I said, now there are commentators that would disagree, my interpretation that that was Jesus, and so if I'm consistent then, I would say this would then also be Jesus, who is now going to speak to Daniel at the close of this book, and he's going to, to end this book with the truths that we need to know to persevere. Now, if I'm wrong and it's not Jesus, it doesn't really change anything, uh, but that's how, uh, based upon what we saw in chapter 10 and where we're at now, how I understand this passage and how it's coming to us. So three truths. We're at the end of the book. Daniel has seen who his God is. He's seen there's going to be great persecution. There's going to be great trials. Um, in fact, we saw in chapter 10, there's going to be a ma- or in 11, there's going to be a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, which we also saw in chapter uh, 8. He will greatly persecute the people of God. He's a king uh, from Syria, one of the northern kings. And, and he will come and he will wage war and what in chapter 11 says, against the holy people, against God's people, the Jews, in, uh, in 167 to 164. So for about three and a half years, he will bring hell down on God's people. He will torture them. He will kill them. If they recant the faith, they can live, which we see many will do. 11, chapter 11, verse 32, some will abandon the faith because of this persecution. And this is then what we see not only takes place there, but as chapter 11 continues, if you were here, it seems that we move from Antiochus Epiphanes, this Antichrist type figure, and Antichrist would be someone who opposes the rule of God, denies Jesus, and opposes the people of God. So we have Antiochus would be a figure. Titus in the first century would be a figure. Hitler, Stalin would be certain figures that we could point to at times in history. And it looks like it's all escalating to to future time where God's people will be persecuted. So that's how we see that Daniel not only addresses the people in his time, but in the generations to come, all the way to the return of Christ, that there will be figures or nations or world powers, however that looks, that will be persecuting the people of God. And so a good question that we might ask would be, well, how long is this going to happen? That would be a good question. And that's actually what we read in verse 7. Now what's interesting one of the angels is the one asking the question. I just think that's interesting. It's not Daniel. It's an angel. Look at it. We come to uh, verse 6. Someone said to the man, so someone, one of these people on the banks, said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? So it's one of these angels. And throughout the Bible, we just see these little glimpses, especially in, I think it's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, somewhere right around there. That angels are so interested in the redemption plan of God that they long to look at what God is doing. And so here we have the angels who, who are listening and watching all that's happening, and they're going, how long? Which is also, I believe, our question too. How long? So what I want to just say before Jesus gives the answer, he doesn't give a date but rather he describes the times of the end. 
Now, this is, this is key. Never in Scripture are we ever given a date or some type of time that we know when Christ is going to return. Never are we given that, and yet you know there's books written about it. There's people that will say, I know when Christ is going to return. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said, I don't know, the angels don't know, no one knows, but the Father knows. So just, just real quick, if you ever hear of someone coming that has a date, just know they're going beyond Scripture. They're going, in fact, many false religions are built upon these types of prophecies. So just know, they're going beyond Scripture at that time because we don't have a date. Rather, what we have is a description of how you know you're in the end times. And so Jesus gives two answers, verse 8. The first one is, well, there'll be a times, times, and half a time, which that's very helpful. Uh, the second, so just so you know, when you're in Daniel, it's, it's, there's tough stuff. It's not the easiest book, but it's not hard in the sense that we can't understand it. It's just going to take a little more work. The second answer seems to explain what this times, times, and half a time is. And he says, when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. So it seems to show the end will come when it appears that God's people have been crushed or been shattered. So is that the right interpretation? Because I just told you it is. Is it? Like, don't just take my word for it. We need to see things in the Bible, right? So, so the pastor stands up. So many of you are military. You're going to be going to different churches at times as you're looking. The pastor's going to say something. Does it come from the Bible, though? Now, at first glance, it looks like it does. But what we want to say is, is does it? So let's, let's just do a little investigation. So the first time we come across the reference time, times, and half a time is in chapter 7, verse 25, when we're in this language of apocalyptic literature, very symbolic language of beasts. And if you go back to chapter 7, verse 25, the context is the persecution of God's people by the little horn that seems to come at the end of history. This little horn would be one of these antichrist-type figures who persecutes God's people. So chapter 7, verse 25, this is what we read. This little horn shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a times, times, and half a time. So here in this passage, the saints are going to be worn out. So it does seem that what we're talking about is persecution. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, we also come across this times, or time, times, and half a time. And there, in Revelation chapter 12, we see the church is pictured as a woman in the wilderness being attacked by Satan. So again, we do seem to have this reference indicates that, yes, it does appear that what Jesus is saying is how long will it be? Well, it'll be until the holy people, God's people, are crushed. That is what we see, is that as we move towards the time of the end, there will be increasing persecution upon the people of God. In fact, there are other references to time that seem to make the same point. In Revelation 13, we're told that there is a beast, uh, which would be one of this antichrist, this little horn, and he makes war on the saints, and there we're told for 42 months, and he will conquer them. Uh, so 42 months, three and a half years, or maybe this 12 of... 1260 and 1335, or 1290 and 1335... Um, Possibly all these 
uh, symbolic references to time of a period of great judgment. Because remember, Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 to 164, for three and a half years, will bring hell on God's people. That became a period of time that was very well known by God's people. So any reference to three and a half years would automatically trigger in God's people. Okay, we're talking about times of great suffering and persecution. And so the way that Jesus seems to be answering, you want to know how long or when it's going to be over? It's going to be over when it looks like God's people have been crushed. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, we come to a very similar question. Let me read chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. So when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had been born. So we're talking about Christians who have been martyred. So these martyrs, verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So how, how long? When are you coming back? Same, very same question we have in Daniel. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. So what we have here is a picture of martyred saints crying out to God, how long until you avenge our blood? And the answer is, until the last Christian is martyred. That doesn't mean until the last, like last Christian is martyred, but until the last Christian who's been appointed to be martyred is martyred. There's a popular gospel out there today called the prosperity gospel. It is a very false gospel. And that gospel says, well, when you believe in Jesus, he wants you to have everything now. You'll have life, you'll have wealth, you'll have possessions, you'll have everything you want. God wants you to have abundance. In fact, the way he makes his name great is by you being great. And so he's going to give you all the money, all the blessings, all the privileges, so you shine greatly right now, right here. That is going everywhere. In fact, the biggest churches in America are made up of prosperity gospels. The, uh, some of the, the greatest movements that are taking place in Africa and other places of the world is this prosperity gospel. And you got to realize, it sounds good to a people who have nothing. You mean I'm going to believe in this God and he's going to give me everything? Our tribe will become greater than that tribe? We can conquer and have everything? It is a very very popular and deceitful text that is out or gospel that is out there today but does it align with the word of god it doesn't we just looked at just a few texts and clearly clearly in this life what we see is that there is a suffering that takes place the picture that we have in daniel of of, of believers is not crusaders but martyrs that's the picture that we have. And that, that's hard for us, I think, in America to wrestle because we don't experience a lot of suffering. Our, the suffering we experience is very real, but it's a very different tactic. It's one of apathy. It's one of nominalism. It's very, very different here. But in other parts of the world, there is great suffering. And so when we read about that, I think it's a little hard for us to understand at times. In fact, you might be here today going, another sermon on suffering. That's where we're at. 
But isn't it true? Like when we look at the world, is there not brokenness that's all around us? Is there not pain? Is there not suffering? Do you want a Bible that says, look, everything's just going to be good, but it's lying to you the whole time? It doesn't make sense of the world? What we have in God's Word is it's a Bible that comes to us, inspired by God, with His authority, that accurately reveals this is what the world looks like because of sin. And it's going to be hard as believers, but there's good news. My son has come. There is life in him, and you will have eternal life with him. And we'll look at that as we go. But all throughout the Bible, we see God's kingdom is not advanced by the sword, but it is advanced through the death of believers. We see that clearly. Look, we go back to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the beginning of the church. And we see the gospel is there. Believers are coming. But what's happening? It's staying in Jerusalem. How is it that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth? Well, all of a sudden, we see the believers start being persecuted. And what does that do? As the believers look weak, as the believers look defeated, what's happening? God spreads the gospel. And so in the weakness of the church, we see the strength of God. That's what we see. It, all throughout Daniel, in the weakness of Daniel, he's thrown into a lion's den. What can he do? The strength of our God preserves him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're thrown into the fire. Well, that looks weak. What are they going to do? The strength of God is what preserves them and, and saves them. All throughout the Bible we see this. When we come to stories like David and Goliath, we don't go, oh man, David's got this. I mean, he's like 12 and their guy's like 30 and he's got like 200 pounds on him. And I mean, like, there's no chance David has this. When we read about the story of David and Goliath, it's not about, wow, David must be an amazing, you know, uh, slingshot guy, whatever he had. But the, but the idea and what we see is that the God of David is powerful and strong. All throughout the gospel, all throughout the Bible, we see the kingdom of God advances not because you and I are strong, but in our weakness, our God is strong. And he advances the kingdom, and not even the gates of hell can push against it, but it continues to move forward. That's what we see when we come here. So that's our first point is the end of time, end of time for this world has been determined. And the clock is not how we think, but it's based upon martyrs. And when the last Christian that has been appointed to die dies, that's when Christ comes back. In verse 8, Daniel now asks a question, which I would probably have questions too. He says, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Okay, so, so what's going to happen? That's a good question, right? So you're telling me it looks like the church is going to be destroyed. Like, what, what's the outcome? What's going to happen? So in verse 10, we have the answer. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be re refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So the point is, is what we're going to see is both the wicked and the righteous will continue right up until the end. So the church will preserve, there will be both wicked and righteous right up until the end. Now, uh, last week what we saw in chapter 11, that believers were called wise, 
And so we see that here in chapter 12. The believers, those who trust in God, are called wise. Those who do not, the wicked, would be then foolish. And so just three points to to bring out here. Number one, the church will continue all the way to the end. So we just saw it looks like the church is going to be destroyed. That's what it looks like, he says, when the power of the holy people has been shattered. So if you're Daniel, you're hearing that, you're like, so are we exterminated? So it looks like that's what's going to be happening, but now God promises, no. What's the outcome? Well, the the righteous will continue, and they will purify themselves. The wicked will continue, and they will continue to act wickedly. And so God is going to be the one who preserves the church. If you remember, if you're maybe in a Bible reading plan, like one of those that just kind of gets you through the Bible in a year, you might be somewhere around uh, 1st or 2nd Kings. And in the Kings, we see that there is a prophet named Elijah. And in the Old Testament, he's in the Old Testament, and he served during the time of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, they are wicked, wicked king and queen of the northern kingdom. Wicked king and queen. They worship false gods. They kill God's people. So at one point, Elijah, he turns to God and is like, look, I'm the only one left. I am the only godly person left. Do you ever feel like that? Like, this, is, this is him. I'm all that's left. There is no one else holy. There is no one else who trusts in you. And then God just, you know, kind of slides it in. I've preserved 7,000 other people. You're not it, Elijah. Sometimes we feel like that. And I think as the church, we feel like that. And Indonesia, they might feel like that a little bit right now. They might feel like that as suffering comes and, and when it's constant and it doesn't seem to stop, we might say, is there any hope? Is there anyone left? Is all of the forces of evil seeming to be directed upon us? Can we stand? What we understand is that the church is the bride of Christ. It is the body of Christ, and it will not be done away with. In chapter 7, we read about all these crazy beasts that represent like the nations of the world. And these beasts might be strong, and they might be horrible, and they might have giant teeth, and they might hold the church at some point in their claws and in their jaws, but what we know is they cannot thwart the plan of God. They will not destroy the church, but God will persevere the church. We see the wicked will act wickedly, though. Those who reject God's rule, they'll be known by the way they act. That's what it says here. It says... um, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. How do you know if they're wicked? They act wickedly. Now, they often don't wear signs that says, I'm a wicked person that does wicked things. Um, But what we see is that they will deny Jesus. They will part from faith. There might be people who are part of the church or who look to be a part of the church, but as suffering continues, they will leave the church. They will deny God. They will say, look, if that is your God, if he ordains this kind of suffering, I don't want anything to do with that, so they'll leave. That's what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes as he persecuted the church. In chapter 11, verse 32, we see, and some, they left the faith. They said, you know what? It's too hard. It's not worth it. We'd rather have our life and live under Antiochus than die under the rule of God. So they abandoned the faith. Why do they do that? Well, we're told in verse 10 that they don't understand. Now, what don't they understand? It's not super clear. 
being that the wise and the wicked are being contrasted, and we'll see in a moment that the, the wise are, are going to be suffering, it looks like the wicked don't understand how there could be a God that would ordain the suffering. That's what I think it is that they don't understand. I'm not 100% sure there. Um, but we're going to know by the fruits of people. We'll know who are believers and who are unbelievers by their lives. And what we see then is that whatever suffering we experience, God promises to use it for our good. We see that also in chapter, or in verse 10. So we see there's going to be suffering. And it's something that we don't really want to talk about, right? Right? Like at lunch today, you might not bring everything up that we talked about. Uh, there's a lot of, it's just hard, like, we don't want to face these kind of things, but what we see is that, according to God's word, this suffering is not meaningless, is not purposeless, but yet God actually uses it for our good. And what it appears in verse 10, it purifies, it makes us white, it refines us. Chapter, or 1 Peter chapter 1-3 says that suffering is like a fire that refines our faith. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 48. Verse 10, behold, actually God is saying this, but in Isaiah, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. God says, look, I use affliction to, to be the means of refining you. Do you know that God's determined to make you like himself? That's good news. Our God says, look, I have by my grace ordained to save you, but I'm not going to leave you. This isn't golf course membership where whether you go or not, it doesn't really matter. But God brings us into his family. The membership in the family matters. And he says, I saved you so I would make you like myself. In fact, Romans 8, 29 says he saves us to conform us into the image of his son. So there's a purpose. Every single person, he says, look, I save you. So that you become like me. So if you're here today and you've been saved by grace, you know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The reason that you've come to that decision, the reason you're at where you are today is because of God's grace. And he's determined to make you like himself. And he has many ways to do it. Through the word, through prayer, through believers gathering today under the word, through encouragement. Those are all ways. And there's another way. And it's a tool he uses often all throughout the Bible and its affliction and its suffering and its trials. Because remember, what we kind of said earlier, God's kingdom advances not through our strength, but what? Through our weakness. And ultimately, the primary way God works to make us more like himself is to understand our weakness and his grace. Is to help us trust in him in all circumstances. And you know what? I have no problem trusting in God when my bank account is full. Bring it on, God. This is good stuff, right? Car works. Bank account's full. Kids are healthy. Like, I mean, I can be a Christian all day long. Right? And that's an easy Christianity to like tell other people, hey, want to believe in my God? Everything goes well. Got, got health problems? Come believe in my God. They all go away. Got money problems? Got in-law problems? Mother problems? Not on Mother's Day. But I mean like on other days. 
that's a great gospel, and it's really attractive to the world, right? It just, it doesn't last, and it's going to burn. But rather, what our God says is, no, no. I want you to know my love and my grace and my power and my strength. And so what's one of the best ways to do that? Is to help you see how much you need me. So this isn't an angry God bringing down hellfire on us because we forgot to read the Bible today. Sometimes we believe that. But it's a God who loves us like a father who comes alongside us, who puts his arms around us, and says, I want you to know my love. Just like there's fathers here, we discipline our children, not because we hate them, but because we love them. Mothers, the reason you discipline your children is because you love them, and because you send them to your room because you need a few minutes, right? <laughs> um, real quick, Hebrews chapter 12. Let's all just turn. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. There's a little lengthy passage, so if you don't mind turning there, it's toward the very end of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. In this passage, we're not going to read the word suffering, we're going to read the word discipline. But think of them as interchangeable. And I just, just think at this point how it is that God uses discipline. That's all I want you to think. Like, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things we can think about in this passage. But just what is the purpose of discipline? Just what's the purpose? Here we go. Verse 6. We're going to go to verse 14. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. There's a purpose. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. There's a purpose. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Just pause right there. Um, I don't discipline your kids. They're not my kids. A way you know that they're not my kids is I don't discipline them. That's what God's saying. If you're my child, I discipline because I love you. It'd be really weird if we started disciplining other people's kids. <laughs> probably, go, probably go to jail quickly or something. It'd be very strange. God disciplines his children because he loves them. Okay, verse 9. Besides this, we have had, this is the point, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, but God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. There's a purpose. For this moment, for, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which no one, with, without which no one will see the Lord. So just a couple, couple points. Now remember, discipline could easily be used for trials and sufferings and pains and afflictions. Just a couple points. Verse 8, it proves that we're sons. It proves that we are sons. And that's not just some masculine thing. It just proves that we are his children. 
Verse 10, it's so that we share in his holiness. Do you realize that? God is holy. He says, I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to make you like, my, like me. How do I do that? Well, through affliction. So I, I bring this discipline so that you will share in my holiness. Not just have holiness, but share in my holiness. You notice that? God shares his very glory with us. Another one, verse 11, it produces righteousness. Verse 14, it's necessary if we're going to see God. We might skip that one a lot. You realize that it's necessary. God says, look, this, this is the way. If you're going to be with me, it will be through this discipline. And let us remember, because I know this brings up questions, and, and questions that we don't have time to answer all today, or that this text necessarily addresses, but when we start wondering, okay, but, but why? Why? Let us remember that our salvation comes to us through suffering. We wonder, could there be good in this? But why? How is this good? Okay, like, do you ever wonder that? Like, how is this good? How is cancer? How is, like, and, and, and in our reality and in our perspective, we see, like, what? Five pieces of the million-piece jigsaw puzzle. We don't see the whole picture, so we have a hard time. I don't understand how this is good. And you know what? We might never understand. I think there's a lot of times we just don't. But I think that that's what happened at the cross, too. The disciples are there, and Jesus has been crucified. Well, this is supposed to be king. They're all sitting there going, how is this good? How is this supposed to happen? No one understood at that moment. And yet, three days later, they all understood. And there is a day that comes, whether in this life or when Christ returns, we will know. We will know how it was good. It might be at the end of days. It might be just at that time. But the good news is we have a good, holy, righteous Father. And I say that because that's what we see all throughout Scripture. And he uses these things, ways that we don't understand, to accomplish purposes that we don't always see. And sometimes we're not sure we want. But the good Father knows we need them. Just like the good Father will take his son and sit him in the dental chair and say, you need to sit, it's going to hurt. They're going to pull teeth today. You're not going to like it. But the father doesn't say, hey, it's going to hurt. I'm not going to take you. It's going to hurt. I'm taking you there. This is what's going to happen. Endure, and you get lots of ice cream later, right? That was my story. Um, as fathers, we know that. I have no comprehension of how having, I had, I had eight teeth pulled at one point. Uh, they had to make room. It was, I had a lot of ice cream. There was nothing my parents could say that makes me think, that's good. All I can do is trust. You know, that's what our parents do. How much more does our Heavenly Father do? Now, when I look back, many years later, I'm like, oh, that's not a bad thing. In fact, my son. <laughs> I'll be doing the same thing with him, taking him to the dentist. Uh, but we know that our God loves us. He's good and he's righteous. He does it for a purpose. It's through suffering we have salvation. Know that. If there's no suffering, there's no cross, there's no forgiveness of sins, and we're forever separated from God. It's through suffering we receive the greatest gift in the world, salvation. And it's through suffering that we not only become like Jesus, but it's also how we show 
Jesus to others. See, we all say, oh yeah, let's live like Jesus, but let's realize to live like Jesus is to endure suffering. And that doesn't mean that we're going to enjoy it all. doesn't mean that we necessarily look forward to it, but it does mean that we have this hope and this joy that in it, oh, there is a God, and he's going to use it for his good. I know some of you, you're in trials. Whether it's health, maybe it's in relationships with family, maybe it's at work, maybe there's difficulty with work, maybe there's difficulty with finances, maybe there is, uh, maybe when you watch the news, your mind just goes crazy, and you're just looking at all these different things, and you're going, how, how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to survive? Know that in all of those circumstances, there is a God who loves you greatly, and he's using them for your good. And as Christians, sometimes the best thing we can do is not try to explain it, but just try to hug people in it. So just know that. Like, we don't have words at times to explain these things. We just hug people. We just love them. We sit with them. Maybe we read scripture, but we just sit with them. And they just need to feel that love of God with them. So know that. And if you're in that today, we want to do that with you. Um, so if you're in any type of sorry, if you've not shared it, come with me. Come to one of the elders. Turn to one of the people around you. We'd love just to pray with you. Love to put our arms around you. Last point. There's a blessing. And it's coming. There's a blessing for those who live by faith and persevere to them. Look at verse 12. It begins with the word blessed. This time for good news, right? Like everyone's ready, a little breath. Okay, let's move a little bit. Good news. There is a blessing. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. And we also read of 1,290 days. I have no clue what those mean. There you go. There's, commentators are split every single place. I'm just going to venture and say... What they mean is that they refer to this three-and-a-half-year period, and God knows the exact time. I, I believe they're symbolic. I don't think you can match him up on, on trying to be definitive on the days. I don't think that works in any way at all. They're symbolic. I, I would say I'm pretty sure of that. But other than that, all I can say is God knows, and that's good enough for me because that's, that's all I got. So if you got more, great. Probably keep it to yourself, though. Because um, I read a lot of commentaries and they, they all gave me different ones. But we're told there's a blessing for the one who waits and arrives. So blessing who perseveres. That's the point, right? There's a blessing for the guy who keeps going. Verse 13, Daniel's told, go your way. Remember, live, persevere, fight the good fight. And he's promised you shall rest and stand in the allotted place. There's a place who's allotted for Daniel, for all believers, that we will come and we will be with God. The point is... Here, here's this message that's been going on from chapter 7. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. And we've seen glimpses of hope throughout chapter 7 through 12. And here at the end, it's, there's a blessing, though. Don't worry. It does come to an end. It is 
coming to an end. And, and there the Father will love to welcome us into his arms where we'll spend eternity with him in a new heavens and new earth, which we read throughout the Bible that there is no sin, there's no pain, there's no shame, there's no guilt. All suffering will be done away with. That is the good news. And, and all throughout the Bible, God tells us of these blessings. Do you know that? All throughout the Bible, it's like, look, there's blessing for the one who perseveres. In fact, in Revelation uh, verses, or chapters 2 and 3, we read about these blessings that are given to the churches who persevere. We read that those who persevere, or in Revelation it says, those who overcome, uh, they include living in paradise with God, having the tree of life, never experiencing God's wrath, the second death, the judgment, being given authority and rule in the new heavens and new earth. I don't even know what that looks like, but, but that's there. Uh, possessing everlasting life. That sounds good. And, and the one that I think is just crazy, and I believe it's Revelation 3.21, we, we sit on God's throne with Jesus. Maybe that's the allotted place that's being told about. I'm not sure. Uh, but what we have is God says, I give you everything. In Romans chapter 8, we are told that we are co-heirs with Christ. Well, who's Christ? Who's Jesus? He's the son of God. Good interaction. And being the son of God, he possesses what? Everything. We're co-heirs with him, which means we possess. Now, it doesn't mean we're God. Like, we, we can't make that jump. Nowhere does it make that jump. But we share in everything that God possesses. He gives to us. Now, there is no other religion which you read of a God like that. There's gods who, who give things or rule over people, make them serve him. But here's a God who says, I make my glory known by sending my son to the cross that you would understand my power, my love, my might, and I, and I save you by grace, bring you into an eternal home, new heavens, new earth, and you will live forever with me, and I will give you everything. Everything he gives us. Now there is philosophical ideas today by people like Marx and Nietzsche that will say, look, religion's simply a made-up thing to keep you in your place. There's, just, there's a reward that's promised. We make up those kind of things just so that we can make it through the day. Or as Nietzsche says, that religion is a crutch, it's an opiate, it's the product of weak men trying to find meaning in a world where there is no meaning. So if we're strong men, then we're just okay with no meaning. That's his point. There are many, many who believe that today, and that is widely proclaimed in media and other sources today, that there is no real purpose. So there's really, as we come, I just want to end with there's, there's two ways to live. And some of you, you, you know that saying, because almost every table group, which is what we call our small groups, they're doing a study called two ways to live. And, and the one option, and, and some of you may be here today, and so this is the way the Bible would describe and say that uh, you've rejected God, meaning that you believe that you get to decide what is right and wrong, not God, and that you live the way that you want. And according to God's word, if that's true, then you will one day face his judgment. So that, that's one way to live. And, and advocates of that uh, might make up many stories of why they believe that. Um, 
But when we deny a God, there are, th- there are things when we deny God, we affirm other things. If there is no God, then I believe that there is no meaning, that there is no purpose, which means your life, which means the suffering that you go through, would be meaningless because you would simply be the random collision of atoms that have come together. And so at that point, you have to begin to affirm that. Or there's another way to live, and it is to believe in a God. Now at that point, you have many options, but if we come to the word, we come to, to a certain God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who what we understand is God rules and created all things, and he created man in his image that we would rule under God. And we were made to be in a special relationship with God. But because of sin, we've been separated. And therefore, we deserve judgment. But God sends his son Jesus to the cross to die so that we who believe in him would be saved and forgiven, would be brought back into the family of God, that we would have eternal life with God. And now that we would live and experience uh, the blessings under his rule, doesn't mean always physical blessings, sometimes, but we would also then be guaranteed that when Christ returns at the end of time, we will be with God forever. And so that's really how Daniel, I think, is, is, is closing. He's saying, let's trust. Let's trust in God. Let's follow the God who has revealed himself. And that, that's an option. Your other option is to say, no, I, I reject this Bible, and, and I'm going to decide for myself what is right and wrong. And if the Bible is true, then you would be coming underneath the judgment of God at that time. And so that, that's kind of how I want to close, is, is how Daniel is closing. Live your life, Daniel. Persevere in the faith. And I pray that we would all receive Christ, and we'd all trust in him. But if you're here today and you say, I, I don't want that, just know according to the Bible, there would be consequences. So you need to wrestle with that. And if you want to, I'd love to talk to you. I know there's other people who would love to talk to you about that um, One quick word to moms. Our kids need these truths. We need to help frame suffering in this world for them. And we don't start when they're 20. We need to start when they're 5, when they're 4, when they're 6. And we need to walk through how do you handle the bullies? How do you handle the knee scrapes? How do you handle the fighting and the bickering? Why does all this take place? What is the purpose? How do we navigate them? How do we trust in God? Moms, you have such a pivotal role. You have such an amazing role in that. Do not underestimate the role that you have in shaping your children and helping them understand just the truths of God's word. You have an incredible role there. Now, some of you, you might be saying, I didn't start when I was five. Have I blown it? No, start now. Wherever your kid is, whether they're in the house or outside the house. And I would start, I'd start by confessing and asking forgiveness. Let them know. I don't think I did this well. I want to now. I want to love you well. I want to shepherd you well. I want to give that grace. And so moms, you are an amazing blessing. Don't let sin make you think that you can't do that role now. Wherever you're at, I encourage you. You have an amazing role with your husband, with, with your children, and with encouraging other women to know the truths of the Bible. Uh, so what we're going to do, it's something different. So this is new. You're all ready for this. 
and your bulletins, we've added a kind of a new section at the end of the notes. So we did this because we did it at man camp, and it worked really good. And I figured if the men could do it, then we can all do it, right? Because that, that was our test subject. Uh, so what we did at the end of every talk at man camp is we just simply said, all right, write down a couple things that stood out to you, why they're important. What's important? Why is it important to you? Now, it might be the points that we, it can be anything. Don't feel like, let the Spirit lead you, however that goes. So um, write down whatever feels important, whatever stood out to you. And I just want you to take a moment. And then I'm going to pray, and then the men are going to come forward, and we're going to start doing communion. But just write down a couple things. Then this is what I'm going to ask you to do. So this is where it's really new. There's two things that are new this morning. You ready? When we dismiss, I'm just going to simply ask that you be bold and share with someone else. And say, hey, what stood out to you? This stood out to me. You don't have to go into all of it. You might go into all of it. You don't have to. But what we want to be is a people who share God's word with one another. And we want to begin expecting that when we read this word, God's transforming us. And so we just simply want to take a few moments as we leave, as you're going to the doors, as you're walking to the car, as you're getting the children, and as you're juggling chaos and all of that, simply turn and say, hey, what stood out to you? Hey, this stood out to me. And just simply share might be a two-minute conversation, might be a 20-minute conversation. Um, I'll be down up front. I, I love to be able to talk and pray with any of you about anything that, uh, that you would like to. But just take a moment, write, and then I'm going to pray. And as I pray, then men, you can come forward and we will uh, pass out communion. Our Father, I just thank you for today. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that, God, in your word, it's not just smiles and butterflies, but, God, you show us the world. And you show us that you rule in this world. God, I pray, just help us to understand today. Give us grace to understand your word today. God, I pray that as we just understand that there's difficulties in this world, may we as a church come alongside one another more and more every day. May you use just the relationships here that we would strengthen one another, that we would pray for one another, that we would pray that as a church and individually we would stand firm in our faith. God, we pray for churches around the world today like those in Indonesia. God, you are present with them just as you are present with us right now. We ask for strength. We ask that they would not walk away from the word today, but that they would push into your word, that they would trust you all the more. They would rejoice in the hope. They would cry over those and weep over those who have died, but yet they would rejoice. They know they're in your presence. May we know that too, that this life is a gift, but it's used by you and for you. And God, may we live our lives for your glory, knowing that whatever comes into our life, you are a good father, ordaining it, 
guiding it, strengthening us to persevere. And may you be greatly glorified. God, be with us now as we take communion and as we celebrate that we know we can stand firm, not because of our strength, but because of your son Jesus who came and died on the cross. Help us to celebrate the truth and the beauty of the cross now. In your name, Jesus, amen.